0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Charles Feldman.
1: And as always, the very latest up-to-date information on the global coronavirus pandemic.
2: California is one of the summer's coronavirus hotspots. Now, literally, it's one of the hottest states in the entire country under the grips of a deep heat wave with no end in sight. Not only are there 100-degree temperatures, there are also fires throughout the state and, honestly, throughout the West. All this is driving people inside where the risk for catching the virus is much higher than it was outdoors. So we'll look into the dangerous trio of fire, heat, and the virus.
1: 2020 keeps getting better and better. Some universities have chanced it, decided to reopen despite many others, sticking with the virtual classes. Uh, the Tar Heels, they got stuck and the virus knocked down the fighting Irish. So we'll talk about that.
2: Plus there's a sorority in Oklahoma, I believe, where the entire sorority is on lockdown because <laughs> the women got the virus. Ugh. And how are these kids getting it? They're all going out Um, and they're going to parties and other things, and they're spreading it. They've become the super spreaders of the United States.
1: Yeah, they're doing college stuff, right? Remember when we used to do that? I was a
2: perfect child. (laughs) I was a wonderful student.
1: Always went to class.
2: Always went to
1: class. (laughs) Some hair salons in California fed up with cutting hair outside, so they took a stand and they opened up indoors, even though they're not supposed to, and that didn't last too long.
2: Remember the findings that those goofy-looking neck gaiters were just no good to use as masks? Oopsie, never mind. Before you go throw them out, we may have some new information for you.
1: First, though, California and the virus. Uh, Chris Seedens and I talked to Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, professor of epidemiology at uh, UCLA. So what do we do to make sure that people are safe when they have to go inside because it's 100-plus degrees outside?
3: So right now with the COVID-19 epidemic, we've actually had uh, some signs of success in uh, Southern California and Los Angeles County in particular. So our hospitalizations are at about a six uh, to seven week low now, and uh, the number of cases um, have stopped going up and starting to go down. So we need to continue our uh, prevention activities, which include people wearing a mask uh, when they're in uh, you know, social or work settings or school settings, and also for people to maintain their social distancing. The The challenge, of course, is now as more people are you know, moving indoors due to the bad air or due to the extreme heat, that they can effectively um, separate themselves.
1: Yeah. Are you worried about that? Because people are, are at the point of thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do here, right? I have to stay away from people, so I'm going to go and and exercise uh, outside, but it's too hot, A, and then it's smoky in a lot of the state, so that's not healthy. I have to go back indoors, but if I'm inside, well, I could lose power in a rolling blackout, and then I'm just sitting here in the dark, and I'm hot, and I'm trying not to get COVID.
3: Right, so what we need to do is, you know, focus our prevention on the most vulnerable, and the elderly. So in California, three quarters of all deaths have been in those over 70 years of age. So it's really the elderly that need to make the extra effort to uh, protect themselves, to wear a mask, to keep themselves distance uh, if they can in the evening, you know, be outside, so they eat outside, so they're not in, uh, you know, close contact with other uh, family members. There's actually some new new data now that's come forward that wearing a mask, while it may not be 100% protective, um, it allows people who do get infected to have a a much milder or even an asymptomatic infection. And that asymptomatic infection then will protect them from future infections. So masks have now been shown not only to protect others, but to protect oneself.
4: Doctor, I can't help but think that if people here in, in California, Southern California in particular, are being forced in some cases indoors because of the intense heat, they want to be in air conditioning, because of the, the bad conditions, because of the, the fires nearby, is this in any way perhaps a precursor of what we might see in the fall and the winter in, in other parts of this country where, where cold weather will be forcing people inside during cold and flu season?
3: Well, traditionally with influenza season, we do see as people move indoors and spend more time in, you know, close settings that the uh, transmission of flu does increase. Um, Coronavirus has, you know, really eluded kind of typical scenarios. We don't know exactly what to expect, but we need to, you know, monitor things uh, very carefully. We need to make sure that people who are at risk um, are getting tested. And we particularly have to be concerned now with our firefighters that, you know, while they're outside, they're at low risk, but while they're, you know, in kind of camps or in kind of, um, you know, certain kind of dense living situations in the evening, that they're protected uh, from infection and that they're getting tested on a regular basis.
1: Have you thought through how to make a fire camp work in this kind of a situation or on the flip side, an evacuation? I mean, the Red Cross has set up some shelters for some of these fires and they say, OK, we've got a big lot here. Come in your cars and stay in your car. This is all we can do right now.
3: Well, I think, you know, keeping people um, in their cars, which is a, a form of cohorting, or keeping people in uh, small groups, and that's what people have been doing with uh, farm workers and other people living in group situations, that you kind of live and work with, with these same 10 or 15 people. And this way, um, if there is infection, it stays in that small group and is not spread from group to group. But also we need to make more testing available, and the state has to invest, particularly in uh, these frontline workers, Uh, for more access to frequent testing.
1: Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, Professor Epidemiology Infectious Diseases, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. So one of the challenges to reopening schools and universities has been keeping students socially distanced, probably easier at the high school level than in college. Despite concerns, some universities, they opened up their campuses and then they shut them down again quickly because there were infections.
2: I'm not sure it was better at high school than college, but all right, let's go with that. The (laughs) University of North Carolina... Kentucky and Notre Dame are some that opened and then closed. Dr. Anita Barkin is co chair of the American College Health Association COVID 19 Task Force. Mike, you and Chris Seedens asked, is it safe anywhere for schools or colleges to reopen?
5: I think that it is challenging, no matter what your circumstances. Of course, uh, if you have low prevalence in your community, it certainly helps. But um, I think that this is a big ask. Of students and a big ask of institutions to be able to pull this off, and there are um, you know a number of reasons why that is the case. I think that um, schools are be- are very well intentioned in uh, developing their strategic plans to address these issues and trying to follow CDC guidelines and ACHA guidelines uh, in order to try to keep people safe and to mitigate. Um, spread of COVID. I think that, you know, trying to educate uh, young people around um, the risk and the behaviors that uh, behavior change that's necessary to uh, mitigate outbreaks is um, important and challenging. And I think schools are trying to do that. But there are so many other factors that enter into this um, that make all of those good intentions difficult to bring to fruition.
4: Well, Doctor, some universities are putting the blame on irresponsible students, and we, we get it, we we're all that age once. Is it fair, though, to be putting the blame on them?
5: Um, I, I don't believe from a developmental perspective that it is fair. Uh, you know, the, the task, the developmental task of young adulthood are all about achieving autonomy, finding intimacy, forming close relationships, becoming part of a group or community, um, establishing a residence um, independent of parents and managing life tasks. Now, all of those things are, are challenging in and of themselves. Those are the tasks of becoming a young adult. Now, we layer on that what we're asking students to do, in terms of changing their day-to-day living. And it's been challenging for all of us to do that. Adults um, have been challenged to change uh, the way that we are living day-to-day. And now we bring them all together, and we say you're going to have a college experience, which is all about helping them address the developmental tasks that um, of this age group, but we say, but you can't do a lot of the things that allow that allow that young person to achieve uh, success in the development of those tasks. So,
1: so do, do you think, of young adults, do you think there is an easy way to do it? Past, you know, surveillance, widespread testing all the time, every week, or something that maybe we could hope to have someday. Um, because then your other option is one big party. Just ruins it all
5: well i I think that um, the testing issue is an interesting one, and certainly there are lots of different strategies out there um, for testing on college campuses, but testing in and of itself is not the answer and the other thing that we have to recognize is testing, especially on a frequent level, uh, one of the um, analytic models that I looked at recently suggested that in order to to really control an outbreak and be successful in completing a semester, uh, you would have to test every two days. Now, that's a big ask, (laughs) not (laughs) only of your students, but of your staff and faculty. And so let's say, theoretically, you would be able to test every two days. That's a very resource-intense strategy. And we're talking lots of money and lots of human effort. And if you get positives, you have to do contact tracing. So uh, you need people to do the contact tracing. And then, of course, you need the, uh, any positives to, to be uh, quarantined, and you need isolation uh, capability. So it's a very, the, the frequent testing is a very int- resource-intense uh, strategy.
1: Yeah, and then you think how many people are actually on the campuses, too. You can trace all the way through and come up with, with so many people. Dr. Anita Barkin, co-chairs American College Health Association, the COVID-19 Task Force. Doctor, thanks. So continuing on with schools, a lot of parents stuck at home making sure their kids are in virtual classes. They're playing uh, work from home and teach from home. It can be a full-time job on its own.
2: That has many parents considering options like paid leave or going on unemployment. It's really, really tough out there, and it's even tougher because of the virus. Employment attorney Paul Starkman talked with Cisco Cotto from WBBM in Chicago about what options parents have if their kids are home or if the kids are not.
6: They have uh, a couple of options, actually. They have uh, There's two parts of a uh, new statute that uh, came into effect in April. Uh, that grants them leave, uh, and it's paid leave um, for uh, if they can't uh, work because they have to stay home because a child's uh, school or daycare is closed due to uh, covid nineteen.
0: so paid leave, is that something they apply for through their employer, through the government? I mean where was that coming from? Yes, it's it,
6: It's through their. It's through their. Uh, their work uh, with their employer, it's, it applies to, to employees who work for companies that have less than 500 employees. So uh, it's it's the smaller companies uh, that, that are affected by this law and employee, employees that need uh, to stay home uh, and care for a son or daughter uh, whose school is closed uh, can apply for this leave. And they can get up to uh, 12 weeks of, of paid leave. Uh, through this uh, this new statute.
0: With the prospect of some students maybe being online the whole school year I mean parents hope not but you just don't know what's going to happen uh, if they take this leave does it have to be taken as one big chunk can they spread it out and take a few days here a few days there?
6: Yes no, it can be taken intermittently so they can't take uh, leave you know say uh, a school is only is, is open you know one or two days a week and then the rest is uh, remote learning they can uh, they can take that intermittently. So uh, when the when the child is home uh, doing remote learning, they can they can take the leave at that point. So uh, you ca- you can take
0: it uh, uh,
6: you know as you need
0: it. Sounds pretty. I mean, this it, is quite a deal for parents, and we haven't really heard anything about it. I'm pretty surprised as we head to a school year that there hasn't been more publicity about the fact that all workers, as you mentioned, if their company has fewer than 500 employees, they can take advantage of this.
6: Yeah, it's it's something that that was passed uh, right when the pandemic uh uh was, you know, at its height and uh when when you saw most of the furloughs, so that got most of the publicity is that uh, you know, when people went on furlough, they weren't entitled to these these leaves, but now that people are coming back to work or are are back at work, there's this opportunity to take the leave now that, that school is schools are uh uh either, you know, opening part-time or uh, just going on remote learning
0: entirely. We have a lot of business owners who listen to the show. Some of them may not have heard about this yet. Is this something that comes out of the pockets of those business owners? Does the government provide grants to pay for this? Do you have any idea about that?
6: Yeah, they they, they get a tax credit for the amount of money that they pay their uh, their uh, employees for this leave. So that they, they do get uh, tax breaks from from uh, providing this leave, but it does come initially out of their pocket, and uh, you know as salary uh, continuation uh, while they're on this on this leave of absence.
0: and unlike unemployment, you don't have to go and try to find a job when it's over. You just head back to your same job.
6: No, in fact, you have a right to return to work uh, um, and be returned to work uh, when you finish this uh this uh, leave as long as there is work in fact for you to do. And uh, you know you, you aren't put on some kind of furlough or uh, um, you know terminated uh, entirely because of lack of work.
0: Thanks for all the details, Paul. Like we said, a lot of families did not know about this. It's part of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, up to 12 weeks of paid leave if your child cannot go to school, and you can spread it out, too, in case your child has hybrid learning. That's Paul Starkman. He's an employment attorney at Clark Hill here in Chicago. The hair salons, they're closed in California unless
1: they're doing some haircuts outside, where, again, it is 100 degrees in some spots. The closures have put a strain on the businesses. They're struggling to survive so some owners they stood up they opened indoors
2: anyway earlier this week they said cutting hair outside it just it doesn't work the law showed up in many of the cases and ordered the salons closed Jason Baki is CEO and master colorist at starring by Ted Gibson in LA his salon reopened and then closed
1: I called him up asked him how it went
4: we opened on Monday the 17th in solidarity with the rest of the salons who were deciding to open that day in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's shutdown.
1: Okay, so how long did it take for someone from law enforcement or the health department to come to your door?
4: We opened at 9 a.m., and they showed up around 3. We're the only people that we know that got citations that day, but we made a decision to be very public. You know, my husband, Ted Gibson, and I, Have quite a following on social media and were known pretty well in the beauty business. So we decided to make a very public, loud statement. Um, Unlike most salons who have, you know, covered up their windows and sort of done. Um, underground work.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think there's this sense at least some places that either, you know, some hairstylists are coming to people's yards and doing it there, or they'll sneak you in the back. They say, hey, show up at three and uh, I'll open the door for you. Did Did you guys think about doing it that way just to, to keep some business going? Or was this taking a stand?
4: We We took a stand. You know, this isn't about clients. It's about defiance. We feel like Gavin Newsom and Mayor Garcetti have sort of lumped us into this category of dumb and dirty businesses. They're sending a message that they don't think that we're smart enough to handle the responsibility or that we're clean enough to keep our clients safe.
1: You think the science does back you up? I mean, we've had discussions on this show before about actual stylists who've had COVID, the case studies in, in other state, where everyone was wearing masks and nobody ended up getting it.
4: Yes, and actually the CDC came out with a statement I think a week ago, um, actually endorsing that exact case and saying that when the hairdresser or barber and client are both wearing masks, it's a very safe situation.
1: Okay, so we've heard you know, the health department will show up or or sheriff's deputies will will cruise by and then it kind of stops there. That's what we hear from the public officials. But you experienced it. So it's 3 p.m. the first day you've opened. You think that they knew because you guys are public and you have the following. So obviously it was easy to track you guys down. What happens when they walk through that door?
4: Well, first, the um, inspector from the county of Los Angeles came in in the Department of Health and asked us if we were taking clients. And we said yes. And about 30 seconds behind her were two state officers from the Department of Consumer Affairs. So the officers wrote a citations for misdemeanors, and we got a warning from the Department of Health and have a follow-up call today at 1 o'clock.
1: And what are the options they're laying out for you, and how much was the citation for?
4: There wasn't a dollar amount on the citation, so I don't know. They actually said that it may not ever be filed. And the officer was like, I'm not really even sure how to explain this citation.
1: Huh.
4: Um, this is the this is the citation number they told me to use, but I don't really know how to explain it to you, so you'll have to look it up. Hilarious.
1: Did Yeah, did it seem like this person had done this before, or you guys like a, a test case almost?
4: None of them had done it before, we asked.
1: So you've got the phone call today. What do you expect from that? And did they tell you right then, you have to close right now, we have the power to do this, or did you keep the doors open and see the rest of the clients on Monday?
4: Well, our schedule on Monday was to close at three. We opened with a reduced schedule, so we're only open five hours a day. Um, So they actually came right as we were closing. They did say that we needed to shut down, and we haven't. Uh, We're still open. I expect today that they are going to give us a strong warning. I would be surprised if it's more than a warning, but I really don't know. You know, I'm a I grew up as an Eagle Scout and a 4 H'er, so sort of breaking the rules is foreign <laughs> to me. But I felt like this was a really important time for us to use our platform and to make a stand and to make sure that an overlooked industry is heard.
1: Jason Backey, CEO, Master Colorist, starring by Ted Gibson in LA. So maybe you've seen more neck gaiters lately, people using them for masks. A lot of runners will use them, just pull them up as they go by somebody. But then some findings came out that said the neck gaiters don't really work as a mask. And that was a bummer for people who had stocked up on them.
2: I went to Florida State. I won't do anything that if it's involving (laughs) gators. (laughs) No gators for me. But there are new findings that say, you know what? Maybe they're okay. Dr. Lindsay Maher is an aerosols expert from Virginia Tech. She talked to Stan Bunger from KCBS in San Francisco about what she discovered about neck gators.
7: Yeah, we put the neck gators on a mannequin. And we used a method that is more conventional, I think, for testing compared to the reports of the, the, you know, saying that neck gaiters are terrible. And we found that neck gaiters perform similarly to cloth masks made out of a similar type of material. So we used a thin polyester one and we found that, yeah, not really a lot of cloths are not great at blocking a certain size aerosol that's very small and is, uh, it's pretty hard to, to block. But once you get to larger aerosol sizes, one micron and larger, and still one micron is pretty small, the, uh, the neck gator and our cloth mass block about half of those. And once you get up to maybe four or five microns, we're looking at 80 to 90 percent blockage. And what's best, even better, is that if we folded over the neck gator and had a double layer, it actually blocked over well over 90% of of everything from half a micron and larger and that's where we think a lot of transmission is taking place in terms of of size of the aerosols.
0: Okay, and that was sort of my follow-up question. What these are these are very small small uh, particles, these aerosols, but how much virus are they carrying and what sort of damage are they doing?
7: Yeah, we know that virus is found in these small aerosols. We think it the, the aerosols have to be larger than a certain size, probably larger than at least half a micron to contain viable, intact virus that can actually cause infection. Um, that, that's something that's still under research, though, exactly what size carries infectious virus. It's probably, the virus is probably distributed across many different sizes, and again, kind of... Uh, you know what size is most important for transmission.
0: Is there truth to the report that neck gaiters are actually worse than no mask because they break big droplets into lots of smaller or more aerosolized droplets?
7: I do not think that neck gaiters are any worse than a cloth mask made out of the same type of fabric. That result which got reported um and went viral essentially was really a kind of a footnote in that paper and they, they didn't even put it in the main, the data in the main part of the paper because the, the results are really in the noise. So you, you'd almost have to read a little more than is there to come to that conclusion. But of course, um, the media seized upon that. You know, I, there was something different about the neck gator in that study. We don't know what it, what it was. They only tested one neck gator, They tested it on a, on a human, which is good for getting real droplets but maybe not as great for repeatability the way we tested it in the lab was with a kind of an artificial droplet generator really a medical nebulizer um and then we had the equipment that can actually measure particles that come through or droplets and aerosols that come through and their size so in the in the other previous work they they were using trying to use a low cost method which has a lot of uncertainties associated with it
0: Dr. Lindsay Marr, professor of civil and environmental engineering and an expert in airborne disease transmission at Virginia
1: Tech. Theme parks, a lot of fun. Remember those? But nobody who works or runs one has been smiling lately. A survey from the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions finds theme parks around the U.S., They've cut 125,000 jobs because of all this. 40% reduction from last year. Those that are open have already reduced the hours, cut the weekly days that they operate, and then they've laid off people. Disney World has reopened. Disneyland here has not. No timetable as to when. The happiest place on Earth will get that magic
2: back. No roller coasters. No Space Mountain. No Zorin. I, you this know what? I don't year. know how the world survives. <laughs> you know, you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others at Radio.com, at the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you get coronavirus daily every day.